Um, after I give the benediction, I'll ask you if I remember to sit back down for just a moment. If I forget, somebody yell to me. But um, what we're gonna, going to do is actually vote on Amy Lutz as assimilation deacon um, after, the media, after the service. And that shouldn't take us uh, long, um, or as uh, Tony put it during the congregational meeting, the assassination deacon. Um, that's an inside joke for those who were there. Um, but um, make sure you volunteer for stuff. So anyway, <laughs> anyway, so that will happen after the service. And Eric, if you could come up and facilitate that, because I don't believe Buddy's here today. All right. Um, okay. Children's church. Children's church. Yes. Yes. Okay. Let me pray for us, and then, then we'll begin. Father, we, we do indeed thank you for the opportunities that you give us to come into your presence to worship, Lord, to worship your name in song and in prayer, and, uh, Lord, through the hearing um, and proclamation of your word. Lord, I pray that through your Holy Spirit, Lord, that you would superintend uh, the message, Lord, that you would... Um, Help me to speak with clarity, with conviction, but Lord, that you would take the preparation, um, Lord, and that you would use the, through the power of your Holy Spirit that you would work in us and through us that we might uh, live in a way that is pleasing in your sight. In your name we pray, amen. All right, so um, as we move through the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Jesus has taught on a number of uh, interrelated areas of the Christian life. And uh, back in chapter 6, he taught on the subject of prayer, and he warned us about what we should not do. We are not to pray like the hypocrites who stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others, uh, Matthew uh, 6, 5. We're not to heap up empty phrases, thinking that will be heard for our many words, uh, Matthew 6, 7. Rather, Jesus said, but when you pray assuming that you would indeed pray, go into your room, shut the door, and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Chapter 6, verse 6. He then gave us the, the Lord's Prayer, uh, verses 9 to 13, as a model of how we ought to, pray, ought to pray. That prayer includes worship and adoration, a prayer for the coming of God's kingdom, that His will would be done on earth. Prayer for our daily needs, forgiveness of sin, and the protection from evil. And as we move forward this morning, as we move forward this morning in chapter 7, Jesus will revisit the subject of prayer and bring out several very important aspects for us to understand. So if you would, open your Bibles to Matthew 7, verses 7 to 12. Okay, we'll pick up where we left off last time. As usual, I'll read the full text, and then we'll go back and take a deeper look at the specific verses. Jesus teaches, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread will give him a stone. Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? So whatever you wish that others would do to you, 
do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Verse 7, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. This is a rock solid, absolute promise made by the Son of God Himself, speaking with all the fullness and authority of His Father. And just in case we don't get it, just in case we, you know, we read it too quickly, Jesus repeats it in verse 8 with the fulfillment and the assurance. He says, for everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be open." James, the brother of Jesus, said, first time I ever did that, you do not have because you do not ask, James 4.2. Jesus says, ask me, keep asking, seek, keep seeking, knock, keep knocking. We're, we're to, we are to come to God in prayer. It, it's not a blank check for the health and wealth gospel. It's an absolute assurance that God will give good gifts to His children who ask and seek His will. God provides for the needs of His children, but He doesn't necessarily provide for our wants and desires, especially when those wants and those desires are sinful or will do us harm. There's a Garth Brooks song that I enjoy called Unanswered Prayer. Without going into, I'm sure many of you, most of you have probably heard the song, without going into all the lyrics, the chorus goes like this. It says, sometimes I thank God for unanswered prayers. Remember when you're talking to the man upstairs. Just because he doesn't answer doesn't mean he don't care. Because some of God's greatest gifts are unanswered prayers. And what he calls unanswered prayers are in actuality answers. Sometimes the answer is no. Sometimes the answer is a redirection. Sometimes the answer is something that is exceedingly more than we can ask or imagine. Ephesians 3.20 God is always working for the good of His children and for His glory, always. And we can rest in that assurance. For everyone who asks, receives. And the one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be open. Verse 8. As we look at those two verses in particular, I believe that Jesus is teaching us three very important principles in verses 7 and 8. They are, number one, the realization of our need. The realization of our need. Number two, an awareness of God's supply. And number three, the persistence that we're called to as we seek it. Okay? First, the realization of our great need. Why is it? Why do you think that Jesus shares this particular section on prayer at this point in the Sermon on the Mount? There's a lot of disagreement by commentators on that. Why do you think... In context, we just looked at the prohibition against judging others. I did that about a month ago. We said that Jesus' command did not mean that we are never to exercise judgment or discernment. In fact, we're commanded to do so. Rather, the prohibition is against judgmentalism 
and our tendency to judge others wrongly based on our various prejudices. We cannot remove the speck from our brother's eye because of our hypocrisy and the log sticking out of our own eye. It's not a matter of our desire to remove the speck from our brother's eye, but of our inability to do so. We're incapable of performing that surgery until we first deal with the sin in ourselves. We need repentance, forgiveness, and the power to live with the Christian li- live the Christian life in accordance with God's command. And where does that power come from? It comes from outside of ourselves. It must. It must. It comes through asking. Jesus said, ask, it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, it will be opened to you. We have a great need that only He can fill. Only He can fill. Second lesson that Jesus teaches in verses 7 to 8 is an awareness of God's supply. Since the power to deal with sin and to live the Christian life is outside of ourselves, we must go to Him for that power. Jesus says, ask, seek, and knock. And in verse 8, provides the answers to that prayer and the assurance that God will provide. He says, for everyone who asks, receives, and the one who seeks, finds, and the one who knocks, it will be open. Everyone does not mean everyone universally. Everyone means everyone who asks. And contained within that everyone is the assumption that that person asking is a child of God who comes to the feet of their Heavenly Father. See, the Father's nature is to provide good gifts for His children. His desire is to do so. And His power is unlimited. And because God is able to provide through His sovereign power, and because He desires to provide by His nature, we can rest in the assurance that He will indeed provide. When we ask, when we seek, and we knock, we can be absolutely certain that God will answer those prayers for our good, and for His glory. Third lesson that Jesus teaches in verses 7 and 8, and in fact, this is His main point, is persistence in prayer. Persistence in prayer. The sense of the word ask is that we are to keep asking. It's an ongoing process. When we seek, we are to keep seeking. When we knock, we are to keep knocking. There's a progression and an escalation. I don't need to go too far into that. I think commentators go further than they need to. But there's an escalation. There's a a progression there. Persistence in prayer is taught throughout the entire New Testament. The Old as well, but in the New Testament in particular. In the parallel passage in Luke 11, which falls right between the Lord's Prayer, which we've already covered, and Jesus' words on asking, seeking, knocking, which we're doing today. Jesus tells this parable, right between those two. He says, Which of you, who has a friend, will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey. I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, Do not bother me. The door is now shut. My children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you. 
though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend. Yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. Luke 11, uh, verses 5 to 8. The same way, same way, Jesus told another parable of the persistent widow in Luke 18, 1 to 8. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. In other words, the whole point of the parable is persistence in prayer. He said, In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterwards he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says, and will not, hear this part, and will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Have you prayed to God for some specific situation? I know we all have, right? Perhaps you've prayed for a loved one, for their salvation, or for a specific health concern. Perhaps you've prayed for a job or that God would give you victory over some sin in your life. Perhaps you prayed that the Lord might give, Lord might give you joy in the midst of trials. Pray and keep praying. Pray and keep praying. God uses the conversation to draw us closer and closer to Him. He uses the conversation to teach us to rely on Him and on His strength. He uses the conversation to conform us into the image of His Son, Jesus Christ. Pray, pray, and keep praying. Prayer is the ordained means that God uses to answer the petitions of His children. Ask and keep asking. Seek and keep seeking. Knock and keep knocking. Be persistent in prayer. Know that God will answer your prayers abundantly. Know that He will answer your prayers for your good. You can count on that. Verses 9 and 10. Jesus makes a comparison to earthly parents. He says, Or which one of you, if his son asked him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asked for a fish, will give him a serpent? The question, obviously, is rhetorical. If a son asks a father for bread, for sustenance, there is no father who will give him a rock to gnaw on. All right? If a son asks for a fish, there's no father who will give him a serpent instead to do him harm. Commentators will point to a rock being shaped like a loaf of bread and to the danger of giving a snake to a child. One commentator, instead of pointing to the danger of the serpent, pointed rather to the fact that the serpent would be considered unclean. Either way, the point's the same. No loving father, on being asked by a child for food, would give them something that would cause them harm or defile them, right? See, parents have an innate desire 
to give good gifts to their children. And certainly we do so imperfectly, with varying degrees of success. Yet the will to give good gifts to our children is usually present. It's usually there. Jesus' word in verses 9 and 10 assume that reality as a given. But then he provides us with the contrast, right? Verse 11, he says, If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Now, the first thing we should note in this verse is the universal reality of the fallen condition, right? Jesus says, if you then, excluding himself, right, um, Jesus is not evil, so if you then, excluding himself, who are evil, he presupposes the sinfulness of the fallen human nature. He's not saying that man is as bad or as evil as they can possibly be. In fact, he acknowledges that they're capable of giving good gifts to their children, right? He's, he's saying, you can do that. That said, sin taints everything that we do. Outside of the scope of the message, sin taints everything that we are. People are evil. They are self-centered rather than God-centered. Hold on to that phrase, self-centered, because it'll become important when we get to verse 12. But for now, he says, if you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? I know it's not in the Greek, but I've, I'm, that verse 11, look in your Bibles, I love the fact that they put an exclamation point at the end of the line. Because um, it should be. It should be. Um, so, just as he's done earlier, all right? So we read that verse, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? And just as he's done earlier in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus argues from the lesser to the greater, okay? There are several instances where he's done that. He says, if you parents, the lesser, okay, who by your very nature are evil, instinctively know how to give good gifts to your children and actually desire to do so, all right, how much more will your Father, the greater, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask him? The general sinfulness of humanity is assumed here, since even those who call God Father are said to be evil, all right? Yet by God's grace... By God's grace, flawed human fathers meet their children's request in love. How much more will God the Father, who treats even his enemies kindly, answer his children's prayer? Right? When Matthew quotes Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, he does so very generally, okay, in, in verse 11. His focus is on the wonderful truth that the Father gives to those who ask him. And the promise is broad and it's unspecific. What are those good gifts? Um, the good gifts that the Father gives are those things that are necessary for disciples, such as righteousness, purity, humility, wisdom. The gifts would include food, clothing, and the freedom from anxiety that reliance on God enables, chapter 6, verses 25 to 34. But 
The parallel passage in Luke 11.13 specifies the greatest gift of all, the Holy Spirit. That gospel reads, in the same account, that gospel reads, if you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? Right? A lot more specific. To those who ask, seek, and knock, the Holy Spirit will be given. Again, as I've pointed out in a number of our messages on the Sermon on the Mount, it's important for us to remember the audience to whom the sermon was addressed. Okay? We need to remember the audience. Jesus didn't preach this message to the masses. He preached it to his disciples. He preached it to his disciples. So our assumption in every passage so far, and as we continue on through this chapter, um, is is that the message is intended for those who are already in Christ and therefore are already indwelt with the Holy Spirit as a guarantee of our inheritance, Ephesians 1.14. So when Luke says that the Heavenly Father will give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him, I don't believe he's talking about salvation. Rather, I believe he's referring to the ongoing presence of the Holy Spirit's power in our lives. Right? That's why Jesus says to ask and keep asking, to seek and keep seeking, to knock and to keep knocking. It's not a one and done. It's not a one and done. Rather, it's an ongoing infusion of the power of the Holy Spirit in order to enable us to live the Christian life. I think in one of the previous messages I said in a similar context, it's not about salvation, it's about sanctification. Same thing here. Okay? In order to live the Christian life. It's, it, it's the presence of the fruit of the Spirit, which is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Galatians 5, 22-23. And if we go back, which we're about to, if we go back and look through the Sermon on the Mount, we can trace this thread from beginning to end. Right? From beginning to end. Jesus began by emphasizing, we're all the way back in chapter 5 in the Beatitudes, Jesus began by emphasizing our great need right at the start. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Chapter 5, verse 3. So we begin with the recognition that we are weak and that we need the strength of another in order to live the Christian life. He said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Um, Verse 6. So this deep desire... And longing for righteousness needs to first begin in ourselves and then extend to the world as well. And that righteousness must be more than merely an outward conformity to the letter of the law. It must include our thoughts, our attitudes, the motivations of our heart. In fact, Jesus says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 5.20. We've covered all this in detail. And we're not to worry about what we're going to eat or what we're going to wear. Jesus said it's important to focus on one thing. One thing that's important. That one thing is His kingdom and His righteousness. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Matthew 6.33. And how are we to seek? 
How are we to seek that righteousness? We are to ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be open to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be open. Matthew 7, 7 to 8. And Jesus' response is, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Matthew 7, 11. Or as Luke says it, how much more will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Through the power, the presence, and the fullness of the Holy Spirit, God gives us every good gift. Every good gift. James, the brother of Jesus, said, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. James 1.17 And Peter said, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. 2 Peter 1.3 Seek the good things. Seek the good things. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Matthew 6.33 And if you truly, truly desire these things, ask God. Pray persistently. Ask. Seek. Knock. And then rest in the assurance that these things will be given to you. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones summarizes the passage in this way. As usual, he says it better than I can. He says, that is the way to face the future. Find out from the Scriptures what these good things are and seek them. The thing that matters supremely, the best thing for all of us, is to know God, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom He has sent. And if we seek that above everything else, if we seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, then we have the word of the Son of God for it, that all these other things shall be added unto us. God will give them to us with a bounty that we cannot even imagine. Ask, and it shall be given you. Seek, and ye shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. When I began preparing this message, my original intent was to stop there. For those of you who are reading from, and this is something you might want to, if you do have your Bibles open, I would recommend taking a peek to understand this. For those of you who are reading from an ESV Bible, you will see a heading over verses 7 to 11, which reads, Ask, and it will be given. And then another over verses 12 to 13, which reads, The Golden Rule. Right? My intent was to address verse 12, and only verse 12, the next time I'm in the pulpit. But if you're reading the NASB, okay, those of you who have NASB, you might see a heading over verses 7 to 12. That reads, prayer and the golden rule. Well, which is right? Which is right? We know that the headings are not canonical. 
I mean, they're not part of the, the canon of Scripture. They're simply given by the publisher as a guide to breaking up and understanding the text. In this case, though, as I looked a little deeper, I determined that the NASB represents the better grouping. And the reason is that, and it's important reason, it, you know, it sounds trivial, but it's not. Um, the reason is that rather than being an isolated text, verse 12 is really a continuation of thought for what comes before it. And in many, many ways is a summary of, what, of much of what Jesus has taught throughout the entire Sermon on the Mount, right? The King James Version makes it um, explicit, right? It says, therefore... All things whatsoever ye would that men should do to you, do ye even so to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Whenever you see the word therefore, we want to look back to see why it's there, why it's there. And in almost every case, in almost every case, it represents a summary or action statement based upon a flow of thought or argument that came before it, right? We understand this. The NESB is almost as clear. It reads, in everything, therefore, okay, treat people the same way you want them to treat you, for this is the law and the prophets. In the ESV, which is a very readable text and why I use it, the therefore is not explicit. It says, so whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. The word so has the same meaning as therefore, but it is, in my opinion, too subtle, too subtle. It's easy for us to miss it, and I would argue that's why some of the, why some of the commentators do. And when we miss it in this case, it's very easy for us to take verse 12 on its own and disconnect it from all that came before it. And if we do that, I believe we miss the internal unity of Jesus' words, because in many ways, Jesus hasn't left the theme of judgment of others that he introduced in verses 1 to 6, last time I was in the pulpit. He says, judge not, that you not be judged, verse, Matthew 7, verse 1. And we determined that wasn't a blanket statement against judging. Rather, it pointed to an attitude of judgmentalism caused by our own hypocrisy. And so first, remove the log from your own eye before attempting to remove the speck from your brother's eye. And the statement on prayer, okay, the statement on prayer that we're talking about today, verses 7 to 11, reminds us of what God has done for us in spite of our sins. As a loving Father, He will give good gifts to all who ask Him. So as we move from verse 12, move to verse 12, we're still on the subject of how we interact with others. Okay, we haven't left it. How are we, are we to act toward our brother? How are we to act toward our brother? When Jesus was asked to give the greatest commandment, his words were very clear. He said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first, the great and the first commandment, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself, Matthew 22, 37 to 39. The golden rule, which is given here in verse 12, is nothing more and nothing less than an action plan for fulfilling the second greatest commandment. An action plan for fulfilling the second greatest commandment. Jesus says, so whatever, so whatever you wish 
that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. In one sense, in one sense, the statement of this principle does not originate with Jesus. Okay? There were versions of this principle stated prior to Jesus' earthly ministry. Rabbi Hillel, in AD 20, for example, voiced, What is hateful to you, do not do to anyone else. And then he went on to say, This is the whole law, all the rest is commentary. Go and learn it. I got it. I like the guy, you know, but go and learn it. Um, certainly that's good advice, but it's stated in the negative. It's not enough. It's stated in the negative. It's not enough. Only Jesus stated the golden rule in the positive do unto others as you would have them do unto you, right? And that's significant because it not only deals with sins of commission but also deals with sins of omission as well. In Matthew 25, 31 to 46, for example, Jesus teaches on the final judgment. And he separates the sheep to his right, the goats to his left. He says to the goats, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Matthew uh, 25, 41 to 43. Then he concludes, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. Uh, Chapter 25, verse 45. Do you see the difference between stating the golden rule in the positive versus the negative? See, under Rabbi Hillel, under his version, the goats would have been acquitted. The goats would have been acquitted. They didn't proactively do anything to sin against the hungry, the thirsty, the sick, or those in prison. It wasn't about what they did. When Jesus is talking about this final judgment, sheep and the goats, it wasn't about what they did, it was about what they didn't do. It was about what they didn't do. What they didn't do is seek the good of others. And that was enough to send them to eternal punishment. But Jesus' words emphasize the positive. He says, So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. That's how verse 12 connects to 7 through 11. See, God proactively gives good gifts to his children, despite um, those of us who are in our, despite our our sin natures. We are to do the same to others. We are to do the same to others. The problem with the human condition is that we focus too much on self. We focus too much on self. Earlier in the message, I said, hold on to the phrase, self-centered. We're commanded to love our neighbors as ourselves. But we rarely get past ourselves and transfer our thoughts and therefore our actions to the other person. We want what we want. We want what we think we deserve. 
We care only for our own well-being and rarely think of the needs and the desires of others. And in the cases when we do, it's almost always after our needs are met, right? So self-centeredness stands in the way of obeying Jesus' command to love our neighbor as ourselves. Self-centeredness is a direct fruit of the fall and of our sinful condition. So how are we to implement the golden rule in our lives? We begin with God. We begin with God. Jesus said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. A second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. The order is important. The order is important. First, love God. Then love your neighbor. We cannot truly love our neighbor rightly as ourselves until we love God. There's one thing. It's impossible for the non-believer to do this according to God's command without the power of the Holy Spirit. When we see God rightly, then we can see both ourselves and our neighbor as what we truly are. Desperate sinners in need of grace. Desperate sinners in need of grace. We're in the exact same predicament as they are. Love your neighbor as yourself. You're traveling the exact same road. Traveling the exact same road. Jesus summarizes this uh, section, and in fact, I would argue most of the Sermon on the Mount, with the statement, for this is the law and the prophets. He could be referring to verses 7 7 to 11. Since God gives good gifts, we should live by this rule as a function of gratitude, right? He has gifted us. We can do the same for others. He could be referring to verses 1 to 6. Instead of judging others, we should treat them as we would want to be treated, right? More than likely, however, and I, I, I believe both of those are actually true, but more than likely, I believe he's referring to everything that he said in the Sermon on the Mount up to this point. Right after the Beatitudes, in Matthew five seventeen, Jesus says this. He says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And that reference to the law and the prophets serves as a bit of a bookend for us, right? We have it at Matthew 5, 17. We have it again here in Matthew 7, verse 12. I believe that the command is to love, to love our neighbor as ourselves is in part, in part, not in the whole, the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. And is an excellent summary of the righteousness that's to be displayed by disciples in Christ's kingdom. It's stated here in verse 12. It's repeated in Matthew 22:40, which is the context where Jesus shares the first and second great commandment. And it is paraphrased in Romans 13:9. And we're going to end with that. Romans 13:9 says, "For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder." You shall not, by the way, does this sound familiar from the Sermon on the Mount? Right? 
You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the the privilege of coming before your throne of throne of grace as your children. Father, we we are we counted a privilege that we can indeed call you father. And as a loving father that you give good gifts to your children. But Lord, you told us to ask, to seek and to knock in the sense is that we are to do that in an ongoing way, an ongoing, persistent way. Father, use our prayers to draw us closer to you. Use the conversation, Lord, to, to teach us reliance upon your grace and your mercy. Father, teach us how we are to love others. Lord, that that indeed is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. The entirety of the Old Testament points to that. That's why it's the great commandment. So, Lord, help us. Help us to seek you first and your kingdom and your righteousness. Lord, to to come before your throne to, to worship you for who you are and how you work in our lives. Lord, help us to rely on that grace and mercy to live the Christian life. Help us, Lord, to love others in a way that is pleasing to you, Lord, and in a way that replicates your tremendous, tremendous love for us. Father, we thank you. We give you all the praise. For it's in your name we pray. Amen. Um, Please stand for the benediction. I will give the benediction, and then I think I need to leave the room, right? Is that how that works? All right. All right. So, with that, may the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may, with one voice, glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Don't go in his peace, sit down, but leave afterwards. (laughs) Amen. Thank you for being willing to stick around for just a couple minutes. We uh, have a vote that we need to take.